Welcome to the Energy Environment Economy Podcast, a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. My name is Ann Geisinger. I'm Executive Director at EBC and one of your hosts for this episode. Here at Energy Environment Economy, we talk about the business of the environment, from brownfields redevelopment to grid modernization, renewable energy to stormwater management, climate adaptation, and everything in between. Today is another special episode, number two, brought to you by EBC's summer intern, Anna Wilcox. She is class of 2025 at the University of California, Berkeley, and she supported the podcast throughout the summer. She brainstormed potential future guests like today's. And when she reached out to see if our guest was interested in being on the podcast, they said yes. So thanks to Anna for pulling this together and for joining me again as a co-host. Yeah, thank you. I ran across um, Elizabeth Infield when I was uh, just searching topics I was interested in this summer related to like land use and regional planning. And when I saw that she was a pretty local professor uh, at UMass Amherst, I thought it'd be great to have her on. Yeah, thank you for connecting us. So as Anna mentioned, today's episode features Dr. Elizabeth Hammond Infield. She is professor of regional planning at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in the Department of Landscape, Architecture, and Regional Planning. Dr. Infield's current research focuses on the intersection of climate change, municipal planning, infrastructure, and regionalism. And she teaches graduate and undergraduate courses on climate change adaptation and land use planning. She regularly works with communities in Western Mass on planning projects, and she also directs the Graduate Certificate in Climate Adaptation Planning offered through the University Without Walls at UMass Amherst. She is the author of Planning for Climate Change, a reader in green infrastructure and sustainable design for resilient cities, which is what we'll be talking about today. Welcome, Dr. Enfield. Thank you. So happy to be here. Thanks, Anne and Anna, for inviting me. Tell me a little bit more about yourself. How did you find your way into this career? Yeah, it was a little bit of a sideways path. I studied business um, in my undergraduate at Cleveland State University. I'm from the Cleveland area. Uh, and I went on to get a master's in management from the Kellogg School at Northwestern. I focused on finance, but I found as I was looking for jobs that I was much more interested in finance that actually appeared in the world, you know? Yeah, right. So I, yeah, so I looked in, into real estate development and I worked in real estate consulting and then real estate development for a number of years before I went back for my PhD in planning where I thought I could use some of those um, business skills to actually help communities. Yeah, so, that real world, world experience in the real estate development world probably informed a lot of your PhD work, I would imagine. Absolutely. Always good to highlight winding paths. I think that for students not really sure what they want to do, um, I think it is really valuable to hear that if you go in one direction, there's no reason why you can't do a 180 or a 140 or a 120 or whatever, however many degrees it is, and find your way into an eventual long-term career. Have you always been at UMass focusing on climate work, or has that kind of evolved over time? Uh, my first academic job was actually at Iowa State University, which was a great place, but you know, when I had the chance to move to Massachusetts, I was pretty happy about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And originally, I was really just sort of doing straight up growth management, land use planning, teaching zoning, and doing those sorts of things. And around uh, 2007, I was able to take a sabbatical, and I read one of the uh, the that year's IPCC report, and I was like, oh, we need to do something about this. And in particular, because I'm a little cynical, I was like, we're probably going to have, there's mitigation, it's the greenhouse gas reduction side. 
which is absolutely critical and we have to do, but I became really intrigued by the adaptation side since I do a lot in built form, you know, and how we can make cities safer and better at the same time. I'm actually coming to this podcast episode having attended um, EBC's Climate and Resiliency Summit yesterday. And we had a lot of federal and regional state leadership there. So we had, you know, NOAA, HUD, um, FEMA, EPA, and then all the regional, you know, Mass DEP, Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management, all those folks in the room together. And I was struck by how much that could have potentially informed today's episode because they're talking a lot about, okay, buildings are going to be incredibly important. We need to make them more efficient. New England's building stock is incredibly old. It, there's so much work that needs to be done there. Flooding, obviously, is a huge issue um, that we all in this region need to work on. Um, and sort of land use planning obviously came up as well. So it was really an interesting to have have attended that conference yesterday and then come into this episode recording today and have you know read your book in the past couple of weeks, all the different um, sections that focus on different things. So <laughs> interesting juxtaposition. So is that work what informed you? What, what, that, what was the impetus for writing the book? Was just reading that report, getting more into that world, adaptation world? I mean, that was a, that was a long process. I started teaching classes and planning for climate change. And uh, I would just use all the different articles that I had read. And it made me think that it would be very convenient to have one book where some of the sort of foundational articles and ideas could be gathered together. And I did want to say that I co-edited it with um, colleagues uh, Yasser Abunasser from the American University in Beirut and Robert Ryan, who's also in my department at LARP. So it was very much a joint effort among the three of us. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in talking about the book, one of the quotes that I thought kind of was a good starting point was um, in the introduction. Climate change should be integrated into planning, design, and engineering in a way that makes it a standard variable to consider, in the same way that demography, economics, cost-effectiveness, and existing land use inform a local plan. And I think that that really resonates with the EBC community, a large proportion of which are consultants, engineers, designers, um, land use folks. Um, so I want to talk about that quote a little bit more. Um, how do you integrate and make it a standard variable? Are we on our way to that path? What, what have you learned in, in pulling together that book? So in my uh, ideal future, which hopefully won't be too far away, when we do a comprehensive plan for municipality, climate is a chapter and energy is a chapter. And I think that's increasingly true. And then you can align the other policies in a way that addresses that. And it becomes just sort of a normal consideration. It's been really important uh, as a step to do all the climate action plans and the resiliency plans. And those are increasingly high quality. I have students do policy, do evaluation of the plans each year and each year the plans are, are better and that's great. But I would, you know, but too many different plans is not an ideal situation, right? So I think we need to uh, merge them together so that it just becomes a part of the overall universe. You know, so that's that's true at the municipal level. And I think it's increasingly true at the individual project level. You know, as we as you go to do your designs, you're thinking, hopefully, I'm sure your audience is thinking about future climate when they're thinking about what sort of um, standards they need to build to. And it's been great to see that become more normal. 
Right. Kind of going off of that, just like hearing about like the work that like some of your students have done and stuff. Like um, part of the book was that it was uh, emphasized hope. And so I was kind of wondering, like going along that line, if there's like kind of like any kind of like great examples of like land use planning or climate adaption, especially like in the New England area that you think maybe provide like hope in this like field. Although what you just talked about is sort of hopeful um, in that you're seeing better and better plans coming from your students and you're seeing the work start to be integrated. Yeah, it's true. And really, Boston has done a, a, a great job at addressing the risks that are inherent to where we live because you know, we're in an area that's experiencing climate change faster than other regions. And the coastal, the whole coastal planning, I think in Massachusetts is pretty good. I think an area that we really stand to work on is addressing heat, particularly inland, like in uh, cities like Springfield and Worcester and heat stress is uh, through the next frontier. I think there's a lot of work to be done in but it's also hopeful work, you know, because it addresses public health um, in very uh, important ways. It does seem like heat is being talked about a lot more than I've ever seen it talked about before. So as people start to realize how much of an impact heat really does have, um, I definitely, definitely flew on the, under the radar there for many, many years. Water affects um, real estate. Like most people will evacuate. There's certainly lots of counterexamples, but in the United States, uh, stress is actually a much higher uh, issue for wellness living. Um, although for people who live in flooding areas, they're going to be like, no, it's floods. And I totally get that. Like, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that we've talked about at some EBC programs that I've talked about with some of our members is getting a project owner who may or may not be inclined to consider some of the adaptation um, planning that might need to be done for their projects because it might have an increased cost, because it might change the design, because it might change the land use. And so when you have those conversations with project owners, what have you seen? How, how do you convince folks like that, that this is a priority that we need to, to have moving forward if there's no regulation to require it? Great question. I think my favorite quote about climate change is that it is consistently ahead of schedule. And when we look at a 15 to 30 year horizon for buildings, that's pretty short, but in fact, the level of impacts we're experiencing already and are likely to are likely to increase very significantly, even in that really short time horizon. One of the ways I think about this is that investment now protects the value of the asset in the future in the face of change, you know, and uh, particularly, well, for all buildings, whether you're going to continue to own it or whether you're going to sell it, like protecting that future value is really essential. Way back, my first job, my first professional job was um, doing insurance underwriting. Ah. We would, you know, read the, the different policies and go like, yes, no, yes, no. And it has stuck with me as a sense that really insurance runs the world. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as we see in Florida and other places, there's an increasing increasingly insurers are moving away from high risk areas. And that is a huge challenge if you're the, if you own significant real estate. So one of the ways that I would really think about this is that by building in more resilience, you're sort of doing your own insurance to assure that you're going to get insurance in the future. A your building is likely to be one of those that will remain insured rather than 
not. And so it's another way to protect the value of your asset. I mean, we do see right now in the news, there are insurers pulling out of certain areas, not offering certain policies because of the increased risk of flooding and other things like that. So it's interesting that you worked in that field because that is a huge driver for a lot of projects is what kind of insurance is or is not available because of the area that you're building in. So I feel like it's one of the secrets, you know, like we don't talk about it enough and that the reinsurers kind of run the insurance. So, right. And with that in mind, I think one of the other quotes that I pulled out of the book was um, standalone climate plans can be helpful for getting a big view of goals, but implementation happens when climate concern is mainstreamed into policy. I think mainstreamed into policy, but also what is, what is driving change? What is driving climate adaptation work, resiliency work to be integrated? And is it regulatory? As you say, is it insurance? Is it finance? Like, what are those drivers that are going to help us move it forward? Um, what are your reflections on that? I mean, it, it clearly needs to be a joint effort and is a joint effort. And the government um, sort of sets the boundaries and the incentive structures within which private industry works, right? So it's a responsibility for government to set the incentives in a way that's going to make it easy um, and make an even playing field for developers uh, and their designers to do the best thing, right? So I really like, for instance, the, the Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Program in Massachusetts because it sets up, it doesn't require municipalities to do things, but it sets up incentives. And then the municipalities choose what it is is actually most important to, to them. And I think that's sort of, um, like that's the approach that's both politically and uh, practically feasible. We also see that with Boston's resiliency guidelines, right? Like they're not saying every building has to be like this. They're saying, here's some things you can do. Please choose some of them uh, if you want to get approved. And I think that's a very effective approach. I mean, certainly the private sector, like when we think about energy use, the private sector is critical. Um, yeah. Reductions in uh, cost of solar, for instance, that's been so important to extending the renewables and the new uh, investments in renewables is really a result of that joint effort of private and government action. Right. And I think that uh, the MVP program, Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Program, has been really interesting. I've seen it evolve from you're making plans to you're actually implementing your plan. And I think that's a really great example. And we'll link to it in the show notes for anybody who's outside of Massachusetts or who wasn't aware. But that MVP program has been really, really interesting to follow along with and see the work that they've been able to do for all these towns, municipalities in Massachusetts. I think it's one of the best that I've seen personally in this region. Not just in this region, in the country. And Connecticut now, I think, is doing something similar. California has something sort of similar. So it's really been a model that's spreading. And I would recommend to any state that's trying to think about how to how to go about this. You know, it's not perfect. Nothing's perfect, but it's right. good. Don't let the perfect get in the way of the good, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, co-benefits help build like coalitions for, uh, for climate action, such as partnerships between like climate justice and public health activists. Um, and basically like why are these like coalitions uh, so important um, between like such like different segments of like the populace? I think we can look at the examples of uh, offshore wind and really do some learning from that. 
you know, one of the first proposed projects was Cape Wind, and they came in with the classic decide, announce, defend model, where they just told the community, here's what we're going to do. And the community was like, I don't think so. That is not going to happen. And they, you know, 13 years later, they're still dragging on with permitting because they did not do coalition building. They did not do participation. They didn't figure out what would make this project good for the residents as well as for their profit. And um, in contrast, Block Island Wind came in and worked with the community and said, like, what do you need? They're like, we need cheaper energy. And Block Island's like, okay, we can do that. And it became a much more of a partnership between the community and the, the company. And they went through really very smoothly, as far as I have seen, not being on the inside, but from the outside, it looked pretty smooth, especially compared to what happened in Cape Wind. So that's sort of the, the first thing I would say about that is just practically speaking, if you want to do big things, you're going to need to get community support if you're going to go forward. And the other issue or opportunity I would point to about coalitions is that um, there's an increasing desire, I think, by many companies many governments to really include uh, equity action in what they're doing. And the thing about equity is really like the company doesn't decide what's equitable. That's not a very effective approach. You need to ask the communities that you're involved with, that you're affecting, what does equity mean to you, right? And, and that by definition involves coalition building and partnerships. And so I think if you want to make if you want to ensure that what you're doing also, while it makes you money, it also improves equity, that you have to do coalition building. Like that's the that's the only way to do it in a in a genuine way. So, I think this issue of coalition building um, and partnerships is really critical and important. I would point, for instance, uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, was the asthma capital uh, of the country a few years ago doing a little better now, but like, if you don't sort of think about your, if you're in a situation, if you want to put in a, uh, a truck depot in a place where that's the case, you really are going to have to work with your public health activists, or they're going to have a lot to say about your ability to do what it is you want to do. So it's good business, I would argue, not just a fluffy add-on, like it needs to be a core part of the overall project. And I would point to the beginning of that quote is co-benefits help. And so what are some of the co-benefits here that we can talk about when it relates to climate adaptation? They may seem obvious, but there are some out there that maybe fly under the radar a little bit. Oh, I love to talk about co-benefits. We could talk about this all day. Um, you know, the uh, if we think about moving over to renewables, this this uh, cleaner air is a super important public benefit and a public health benefit. Um, and it has the equity component. So I think that argument for renewables needs to be made more loudly and more clearly in terms of, you know, building, I am have worked for a long time on how to make green infrastructure an easier choice, you know, a more obvious choice. And the thing about green infrastructure, like if you compare putting in sand dunes versus a seawall, like the seawall gets you the protection for a little while, but it doesn't do anything else, right? Whereas if you put in restore your sand dunes, you get biodiversity, you get public space, you get beauty. You know, there's a lot of other components that you achieve that, that really add value to the project. And you asked about hope at the start. This is one of the places where I think we need to think about hope, right? Go like, we're not just building a defensive 
new world. We're building a place where people want to live, like places that are beautiful and equitable. And the designs that are being put forward, a lot of them do that very effectively. I think there's been a lot of progress in in that area that people should actually recognize as hopeful steps that combine resilience and uh, renewables and um you know, companies are still making plenty of money. So I don't think it's, uh, I don't think these things work against each other. I think they actually support each other. One more thing I would point to, like if you imagine, a, if you want to get younger workers into your building, if you provide them a building that speaks to their values, I think you're going to have a better uh, uh, experience with the hiring process to try and recruit the talent that you want. Everybody knows this, like, you, you know, and, but I think the resilient green buildings send a message to younger workers that a company is aligned with their values and you're more likely to get um, uh, the sorts of people who are thinking big picture and long-term to come work for you. So I actually think there's an employment benefit too. A little side story, and I will not name the company, but a very, very large company, that company, I, a friend of mine works for this company and I visited their enormous headquarters in the Bay area and they had a, um, they had made the roof of the building into a, almost like a nature preserve. It was crazy. There were walking paths and trees and like lawn areas and beautiful plantings and flowers. And it was just incredible place where you could almost go on like a little mini hike on the roof of this building. And they had like seating areas. And of course, why wouldn't you want to work in a place that has a beautiful nature preserve on the roof of their building? It was so lovely to experience. Um, not that we're all working in offices that much anymore, but but what a beautiful example of integrating a green roof, a particularly intense green roof, but a green roof into a building that provides so much respite for your workers, provides habitat for certain insects and probably some birds. And overall is reducing the the heat impact on the building, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like talk about co-benefits. Um, so obviously there are less obvious examples of co-benefits, but that's just, as you said, like one of the ones that will attract workers to your business if you have this wonderful place where they can work. Beautiful example. Another reason why coalitions are so important is because you're building a connection to disadvantaged communities, to, um, to communities, because of the disadvantaged nature of where they are positioned are going to be much more impacted by climate than other communities. And so one of the things that I see going on that our community sees going on is um, integration of environmental justice into a lot of the regulatory environments within New England states. There's Justice 40 at EPA. And I know that it was a through line disadvantaged communities in the book. I don't know if you have any perspectives on including those communities. I know we talked about equity, but why are they being so impacted by climate? Why is it so important to work with within those communities? Right. So we didn't get to where we are without having a whole history, right? And so there's a reason why in poor neighborhoods, there are fewer trees than in rich neighborhoods. And it's complicated. Like, I want to say that, but a lot of it is because we planted trees in rich neighborhoods and we didn't in poor neighborhoods. I mean, some of it is really very simple. So if we're going to and, and as a result, the poor neighborhoods experience more heat. They have less uh, less um, green infrastructure to absorb stormwater and sort of less pleasure, right? Because public greening is contributes to happiness. 
Um, so if we don't take into account the history of how we got here, it's going to be very difficult to figure out what we ought to do. And, and I actually think that's another place that things are getting better in many, in many ways. There is more attention to this issue of um, what do we need to do to redress old harms rather than just stopping making new ones. You know, that has to be part of the calculation. I will say we have to be careful because um, a lot of communities, their biggest concern is not being priced out of their neighborhood. You know, so this is another issue where it's really important to actually do coalition and participation and understand what the issues are that are important in the area where you're working so that you can address them effectively rather than just imagining for yourself what they are. But, you know, given the history and the impact and the... I mean, part of the challenge for low-income house, like if, if you have a reasonable amount of money, if something bad happens, you probably have a cushion. If you have not had an opportunity to build wealth and something bad happens, it's terribly bad, you know? And so like being aware of that difference in vulnerability to, uh, to impacts um, and to difficulties in recovery is, is really essential. The next question is about like the about how the, there's the inclusion of like simple and easy to follow like evaluation tools, um, which was great to see in such like a, a high level reader about like uh, regional planning and land use. And like, why did you choose to include those resources? I was uh, fortunate enough to get a NSF grant pretty early on mid um, like 2015 to look at green infrastructure in a broad perspective to see what were the barriers to uh, having it be a more standard choice. And one of the things came up is that a lot of the benefits of green infrastructure are these sort of co-benefits, right? And if we don't include them in the evaluation, if we just look at cost and effectiveness, then we miss out on a lot of what we can achieve as we build better places. Um, and so we, after a lot of work with uh, my colleagues in engineering and colleagues in the Caribbean, who have a lot of experience with hurricanes, we sorted out what some of the most important elements are that go into creating a good project. And what we advocate for is trying to do this sort of multi-tiered evaluation early on before you're like, you've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in the design um, specifications for exactly what you think you're gonna do. Like to do a sort of back of the envelope evaluation early on so that you can see what the full portfolio of benefits are for different approaches before you go and invest all your money. Because, you know, once you've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in a design, you really don't want to change it, right? So, so that sort of evaluation needs to happen earlier when um, there's more openness to alternative solutions. And so that was why we developed this idea of the adaptive um, gradients toolkit, and I'll be happy to uh, send a link to information on that. Um, it's one way, you know, it's sort of a simplified extended cost benefit for those who do that, but cost benefit can become very sort of technically mired, you know, and uh, this is trying to argue that we can do it in a faster, simpler way that will also speak to policymakers so that they can go like, oh, this project actually does advance the values that I wanna that I want to demonstrate for us, whereas this project doesn't. I agree. I thought it was so easy to understand that anybody, 
you know, any municipal group of people, some committee looking to do some sort of work, you know, your conservation committee or something like that, could take that evaluation tool that you have and very easily create. I loved that spider web thing. I've not being somebody who does that work, I was like, oh, that's a really cool tool. Um, but it, loving to see how all of that stuff integrates and like, then you choose, okay, well, this project is actually doing this kind of work. And I think actually that one's going to be the best fit way before you have to get in, as you say, into the details and you've chosen a path and this is what you're doing. That was a really, really cool thing to include in the book. And it's not the only example of sort of really easy to understand stuff in the book. It's it's great. I was kind of wondering, like, um, since like the book has been published, uh, was there any like ideas, topics or tools that you've come across that uh, you think like readers of the book would uh, like to be aware of? Oh, what a great question. Yes, that's a problem with publishing a book in this field is it moves <laughs> really fast. Yeah. So like I use the book in my classes, but I supplement with with newer material all the time. I think the um, focus on equity has gotten uh, much better in the last five years. Like there's, we understand better how to do that. And uh, so I would really, yeah, if I do a version two, it's going to upgrade that. And sort of how we do vulnerability analysis has also gotten a lot, um, a lot more advanced, I think. So, uh, yeah. And then the other thing that I would say that I do now that I didn't do five years ago is I think it's important when you're working with people who are concerned about climate change to acknowledge that there are feelings around climate change, that there's anxiety and dread. And uh, sometimes it's easy to go like, yeah, I'll just think about that tomorrow. You know, um, I went to the climate march two weeks ago uh, in New York, and uh, it was really inspiring. And it's particularly inspiring that it is um, driven by newer generations of people. Gen X, millennials, I mean, millennials are, are mid-career now, but you guys know what I mean. So this issue of, of recognizing that we carry emotions around this topic and also that um, brings back to that issue of hope, that it's really important that we publicize and talk about solutions and steps forward, because the news can be pretty grim in the general and the solutions are sort of specific, so there's an unevenness there. Uh, but I think talking about the things that are working is as important as talking about the things that are not working. And that ties right back into that initial conversation we had about hope and how we have hope for the future. We see young people pushing for change. We see this sort of general knowledge of this is happening to our world. There are things we can do. We don't need to lose hope. And I think that's a nice way to sort of wrap things up in a little bow <laughs> and get to my final question, which I ask all my guests. So um, what is capturing your attention this week? And it can be anything at all. Um, this goes back to the hope theme. So hopefully there won't be too much hope in this, but <laughs> can't be too much hope. <laughs> I was talking to my students about this issue of climate anxiety and the question about having children came up. And I have a class of about 20 people and I'm aged, I don't know, 20 through 30 on average. So it's not kids, 
um, because it's a graduate level course, but I asked the students how many of them are concerned about having children given climate change. And I, I really want to share this for other adults out. Two thirds of them raised their hand that they are not planning to have children because they are so concerned about climate change. And I think if we take that seriously as the policymaking generation currently ish, it's it's really um, it's something to think about very deeply. I will say a little like two weeks later, one of the we were talking about various solutions, and one of the students was like, "Well, if we talked about this more, maybe I would have kids." I think we need to be cognizant of the long-term impacts of the decisions we're making on their sort of many levels. Yeah, yeah, that's sobering information. It's important. So it it does inform you know the ways that we move forward. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, Dr. Infield, for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate having you here and spending your time with Anna and I. Um, and thank you to Anna for finding the book, encouraging um, the outreach to have you as a guest. This is so fun. Thanks for your work on the EBC. It's a oh, great. You appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Infield. Maybe the biggest question of our time is how to integrate climate adaptation and climate resiliency, climate planning, into our decision-making, really into our lives in total. Dr. Infield's work helps to set a path toward integrating climate change into the planning and execution of infrastructure projects. And if you're interested in climate adaptation work, you can join in the next Climate Adaptation Forum event on November 30th. This forum is a collaboration between EBC and UMass Boston's Sustainable Solutions Lab, and the topic is Crisis as Catalyst. And it's basically how we can learn from past crisis and emergency responses to better plan for our future. So the link is in the show notes and it includes other links from the episode along with a link back to our website, ebcne.org. Please like, rate, and review the podcast. Your interaction with the podcast helps grow our audience. And of course, any feedback will help us improve. We will be back in two weeks for a discussion about data, how we collect ocean data, who uses ocean data and for what, and how ocean data can improve the nascent offshore wind industry in New England. Energy Environment Economy is a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. Thank you to EBC Administrative Coordinator Stephanie Sukar for editing the episode and managing the branding and marketing, and to EBC intern Anna Wilcox for her wordsmithing. Music is only forward by Roman Senek Music 2023.